Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And today I have with me uh, someone who I consider to be one of the most uh, original and top-notch voices currently active in the environmental policy space. That's Todd Myers, uh, who is the director of the Center for the Environment at the Washington Policy Center. And he is also the author of the new book, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. And the respect is mutual. I'm always, when I, when I have questions about energy, I often turn to you as well. So that's, that's how I become smart as I listen to smart people. All right. Well, that's a good strategy. Um, Okay, so I want to talk about your book, but before we get to that, why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, what you do, where you're coming from? Yeah, so I've worked in environmental policy for more than two decades. I started at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, which is the state's primary uh, forestry agency. Uh, manage millions of acres of state lands, also regulate state forests or uh, private forests. So I dealt with spotted owls, old growth uh, forests, uh, and forest fires. And it's kind of funny because I there's an article from 2003 where I took some reporters out and talked about forest health and the risk of catastrophic forest fires. And I still share that article from 2003 because many of the problems we faced a decade ago still exist. So um, but, uh, so I worked there and now I am on the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council working on issues related to salmon recovery across the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then a big fight that we have about some dams on the Snake River. Um, so yeah, so forests, fish, uh, and energy are the things that I tend to work on. Uh, and didn't you, you were involved, uh, with bees at some point where you're not, yeah. uh, Intimately involved. I, I have hives uh, on my property and uh, I'm a beekeeper and have been for about a decade. So not that long, but long enough. And um, yeah, people think it's strange that I have chosen a hobby where you get stung about 10 times a year. But I think bees are really fascinating and um, and the honey isn't too bad either. Yeah, well, as may or may not come up later, uh, for economically minded uh, environmental people, you know, bees are are kind of like a very illuminating topic. And uh, I also assume that if you're, you know, working in policy, uh, getting stung by bees might be kind of a refreshing change. Sometimes, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's less painful uh, than some other things I have to deal with, to be sure. Right, right. Okay, so let's talk about. Time to Think Small, uh, very interesting book, a uh, very timely book, very readable. There's all sorts of um, stories about environmental entrepreneurs, other people who are doing all sorts of cool stuff. Why, tell us a little bit, you know, what's, your, what's the elevator summary uh, of the book? What's the book about? Well, the focus for the last 50 years uh, in environmental policy has basically been what I call the 1970s approach to environmentalism, which is, is that when you have a problem like, you know, dirty air or dirty water, you create a government agency or you create a government law that regulates it. That's what we did with the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. 
And the reason we do that is because um, when we passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, they worked. We have cleaner air, we have cleaner water. But that sort of top-down, one-size-fits-all solution doesn't work for all environmental problems. Um, and it's not just me saying that. It's actually Bill Ruckelshaus, who was the first director of the Environmental Protection Agency, the one who um, sort of put those laws into place and um, made the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act effective. And what he points out is, is that, um, you know, environmental problems today are distributed. There are lots of little bits of pollution um, and it takes a distributed solution. And so time to think small is about how small technologies has, allow, has allowed us to engage lots of people to address those problems in a distributed way, using market forces, using local information and incentives, and is doing a much more effective job um, than government at solving those types of problems. Um, and so that's what it's about is, is that there's sort of a quiet revolution that is changing how we address those environmental problems that has gone below the radar because so often we focus on politics rather than on the things that are going on on the ground. And I think we need to focus more on empowering individuals and democratizing environmentalism and giving power to people, not to politicians. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look back at the beginning of the modern environmental movement. Uh, I'm talking about the rise of environmental consciousness uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, say. It did, uh, it did start as a very more decentralized, you know, bottom-up, grassroots type approach. I remember the old slogan, think globally, act locally. I think that might have been Stuart yeah. Brand, someone like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and then of course it does see that. So, um, but then very quickly that got uh, taken over or evolved, as you say, towards this approach where you have some, you know, agency and they're regulating, uh, you know, what they call point source. You know, so some small number. There's some small number of factories or other things that are responsible for most of the pollution, and they're regulating that. Uh, this sounds like it's more of a, a return to kind of those those origins a little bit, maybe with the technological update. Would you say that's that's a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, think globally, act locally um, was limited by the fact that in many cases, what local could peep what local people could do was limited. Um, because they could only, you know, make an impact in a small area and there was only a certain limited number of people that could sort of collaborate. The high costs of collaboration and information uh, made it difficult to take local efforts and have them have a global impact. That's no longer true. Now, with technology, you can collaborate with lots of people um, and little bits of information, little bits of effort get magnified. So I'll give you a, a simple example, which is iNaturalist. iNaturalist, for those who don't have it on their phone, it is a super cool app. You can basically look at any insect, plant, animal, and take a photo of it, and it will use its artificial intelligence to identify what you're looking at, the animal that you're looking at, because so many people across the globe have put the data in, the AI has learned. But what iNaturalist does with all of that data is, is it now has this incredible database of species 
Um, and that database of the number of species, where they are, has been used in numerous scientific studies um, looking at you know, the status of different species, learning more about their behavior, those sorts of things. So just the simple act of taking a photo um, of a plant, of an insect, of an animal, of a bird, um, now is contributed to the world's largest global database useful for scientific research on species. That's the power of technology to turn those local actions into big global benefits. Yeah. So let's talk, I think it, uh, some examples are probably helpful to people to, to kind of grok what you're talking about here. So let's talk, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in there, but one thing that I found very interesting and that's related to some stuff I've been doing lately has to do with, uh, uh conservation, uh, during droughts or, or, uh, also in with electricity and the electricity grid during scarcity times. You have, uh, what is this, a striking, I'm not going to remember the exact wording of the line, but it's something like, uh, which is more important or effective, artificial intelligence or guilt, right? Uh, yeah. Artificial intelligence is guilt. Uh, why don't you explain a little bit about that, maybe better than I'm explaining, <laughs> what, what that means and how it's relevant uh, to conservation? So... Um, I think a lot of people uh, have received an electricity bill um, where it says you um, are using either more or less electricity than your neighbors. Um, and the idea was that there's social science research that says, you know, if it says, OK, you're using 20 percent more electricity than your neighbors, that you will get competitive um, and you will feel guilty and you will find ways to reduce uh, your electricity use so that you can keep up with your neighbors. And there is some evidence that that works. But what the evidence also shows is that after a while, it wears off and people just get tired of it and say, you know, screw it. I'm just going to use the amount of electricity that I want to. What the alternative is, is to use smart thermostats and other artificial intelligence to show you how to reduce your electricity use you may not realize that the light bulbs that you have in your kitchen, for instance, are using a lot of electricity. I know this because that exact thing happened to me. So I have a little piece of technology that I put in my electrical box called Sense. And what Sense does is it, is it clips to the wires uh, to my house and uses the electrical impulses from those wires and artificial intelligence to figure out what you what appliances in my house are using electricity and when i put it in there and i look you just you look at your phone and it syncs with your phone and i found that the light bulbs in my kitchen were using an unbelievable amount of electricity more than i ever would have expected now i am an energy geek right these are the things that i should know but i still was very surprised and just by switching out those lights from incandescent to led it cut my energy use for those light bulbs by about 90%. It's really incredible. So now I'm saving not only energy, but money uh, because it pays back for the cost of the LEDs relatively quickly. That doesn't go away, right? I'm not going to stop, you know, unlike guilt, which will go away, uh, that won't go away. I'm going to keep wanting to save electricity and that information is more powerful than just trying to guilt people into saving the planet. 
Yeah, I, I'm so I, I'm Catholic, so I, I am not against guilt by any means. But I do find sometimes when uh, I broach these sorts of ideas to people, they have a kind of uh, moral reaction. Uh, I know recently I was at a conference about water, and I was talking about the importance of water markets and prices for conservation. And someone said, well, what about altruism? Shouldn't people conserve out of altruism? And, you know, I'm also very uh, pro-altruism. I I told him uh, I'm actually so pro-altruism, I think people should get paid for it, (laughs) for being altruistic, because uh, I suspect one reason why you said that there are these effects, but they wear off, is that, you know, if you are being a good citizen and you are... Uh, not not every case. In some cases, as you say, there may be things where you can easily reduce your uh, electricity consumption or water consumption or whatever just by getting something that's more efficient without, I mean, it's probably even cheaper for you. You just didn't realize it. But there also are, you know, there's some cases where people will inconvenience themselves because yeah. uh, there's a drought or there's something else that's scarce. But then if they do that and, you know, uh, then they, they go and they see that their neighbor is, uh, you know, out watering their lawn twice a day or doing all sorts of other stuff, uh, it's very easy for them to get uh, feel bitter and then they feel like, oh, it's pointless. I'm going to stop doing that. Um, yeah, you, f- you, whereas feel like you feel like a sucker. Right. Exactly. Uh, whereas if you do, you know, I, I think one way to look at this sort of thing is that you're sort of being rewarded for uh, pro-social behavior, uh, you're saving electricity, uh, you're saving water, you're helping out the whole system that's under stress potentially. Uh, but as you say, there's an ongoing incentive to do that because you do get financially rewarded for it. Well, that's right. And the other thing is, is that as I know uh, personally from being a, an extremely severe iconoclast, uh, if somebody tells me to do something, I probably will think about doing the opposite. That's just my nature. And there are a lot of us who are like that. Um, but if you tell me that I can save money, uh, I, you know, now I'm interested. Um, and, and the other thing is, is it relying on moral suasion, right? Relying on guilt uh, for things like climate change just is not a good strategy. Climate change is now, according to Gallup, the most polarizing issue out there more than abortion, which is remarkable. So how do you, in an environment where it is so polarized, how do you use sort of political pressure, moral suasion, guilt to get people to act? You don't because people are going to reject it. If it comes from somebody on the other side, you're just going to say, you know, go to hell. I'm going to do what I want. But in the case of water, there are numerous tools that you can hook up to your water main, uh, to your house. And see how you're using water. 10% of water, uh, you know, on average for a household is waste. And that's by running toilets and a variety of things. And, you know, these tools now can help you avoid that. That's a lot of money. 10% reduction um, is not only good for the environment, but that's a lot of money. And then additionally, um, something like 5% of households have a catastrophic leak that causes $10,000 worth of damage. Um, yeah. So these tools now allow will, will 
the artificial intelligence will recognize, okay, something's going wrong because a lot of water is going through and it will pop up on your phone and say, hey, we think you have a leak. Do you want to turn off the water? And you could turn it off and stop that damage and stop the waste. Well, I don't, you don't have to be, you know, uh, a climate warrior or worried about drought or anything else to want to stop that. It's just more effective. And, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have these tools. So a lot of people are still in the mindset of we have to convince people that this is serious when the technology has moved us to a point. It's like, well, no, you don't have to put political pressure on them. You can engage their own self-interest and local knowledge and achieve even bigger things. And that's the mindset change that we need. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about climate change, because this is often cited, it seems like. Uh, you know, a classic example of you can't wear um, individual effort is kind of uh, irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You need some sort of uh, global global uh, uh, program or whatever you want to call it. So how, how might some of these uh, new technologies, apps, strategies help on the issue of climate change? So... <clears throat> There is a thing called proportionality bias um, that is often used to justify conspiracy theories, right? If you think like we, the economy crashes or COVID happens, you, you don't, people don't think that it can be just, you know, sort of the result of a series of small decisions. There must be something going on, some big brain trust who unleashed this or has a purpose or things like that. And so our brains tend to think, well, Big problems have big causes, but the same is true when you're trying to solve them. Big problems like climate change must necessarily have big solutions, um, but that's wrong. That's the wrong mindset. The first thing is, is that big solutions often don't work, right? I mean, the Kyoto Protocol didn't achieve the goals. Um, the Paris Climate Accords right now are behind, not just in terms of meeting the goals, most of the sort of leading countries haven't even submitted plans that, that would meet the goals. So not only a matter of just poor implementation, they, they're not even planning to meet the goals. So the first thing you have to recognize is, is that big efforts often don't work out the way people expect. That's a false promise. So turning to small, the aggregation of a lot of small efforts, it it is counterintuitive to think that they can make a big difference, but they do. And I'll give you an example. Um, so there is a company that works with smart thermostats and pays people to use less electricity during peak hours in the evening. So the peak demand hours is when demand is highest. And there are actually, as you know, um, you know, power plants that turn on basically just for those few hours. It's very expensive. Yep. The ones they turn on tend to be natural gas or coal, which are the most carbon intensive. So if you can shift your demand outside, right, don't turn on your dishwasher, don't turn on your clothes dryer, things like that, um, until outside of that period of time, not only are you reducing electricity, you are reducing the most expensive electricity and the most carbon intensive electricity. And so uh, it does all of those things. And the company that has looked at that sort of did back of the notepad estimates 
Um, and they estimate that it would reduce, that just using smart thermostats in this way has the potential to reduce about 20 Grand Coulee dams uh, worth of electricity. Now, the Grand Coulee Dam is the, is the largest single source of electricity in the country. It's actually near where I live in Washington State. It's a, a New Deal project. But, you know, if people could just get smart thermostats using that artificial intelligence, give, rewarding them, not guilting them, rewarding them for shifting demand, we could save a lot of electricity and reduce a lot of CO2 emissions without top-down government mandates. And I think that's the key. So it's not only voluntary, it's not only uh, rewards people, but it can have a huge impact on reducing CO2 emissions. So I also want to talk about another hot topic uh, these days in environmental policy, which is plastics, right? Um, I know, actually, it does seem, so there was a, there was, uh, for a while, the anti-plastics thing was very hot. All sorts of cities were banning plastic straws. I, I feel my impression is that's actually kind of died down a bit. And in fact, some of the places that I remember where you could not get a plastic straw a year or two ago, you know, without much fanfare, now the plastic straws are back. So I don't know if that's just, uh, you know, poor attention span, people have moved on to something else, but it is a serious issue with the plastics in the ocean, other things like that. Of course, one of the big uh, problems or challenges to addressing this issue. And it's one of the things that I would often cite when this issue came up, you probably did too in your own context is, okay, yes, plastics, uh, plastic dumping is a big problem, but actually it's, it's not really a, a U.S. or developed world problem. It's a third world problem. Most That's where most of the plastic in the oceans is coming from. So how for something like that, where uh, it's not actually a matter of you and your own personal life can make adjustments that that are going to have a big uh, impact on the problem because you are not a big source of the problem already. Right. How how you know what do we do about that with the with in in this context? So I think that there's a couple of really key points embedded in there. The first is. A lot of the things we do for the environment are done to make ourselves feel good, whether they actually help or not. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. You know, we, we've all seen, many of us have seen the video of the person removing the straw from the nose of a sea turtle. That is a painful video to watch, right? You just, you don't want that to happen. And so videos like that, you say, well, I'm not, I don't want to use plastic straws, if this is going to be the impact. I, you know, look, it affected me too. I totally agree with that. But in the grand scheme of things, banning plastic straws really doesn't do much. Banning plastic grocery bags in the United States also doesn't do very much. The United States um, puts a tiny percentage of the, pl of the plastic that goes into the ocean into the ocean. Sri Lanka puts about five times as much plastic into the ocean as the entire United States because we have good trash collection systems. Now, so, you know, people ban plastic bags and ban straws, not because 
it has a big impact, but because it makes them feel good. And we need to change that. And technology allows us to change that. So the beauty, the nice thing about ocean plastic is, is that unlike climate change, everybody agrees that we need to stop putting plastic into the ocean because it's bad. And we need to find a way to collect that trash. Nobody likes litter. Nobody wants it there. So, but where we need to focus is on developing countries. So there's a really cool company, or a really cool, uh, it's a company, it's an NGO called Plastic Bank. And what they do is they hire people in developing countries like the Philippines, like Indonesia, like Brazil, Egypt, places like that, to collect plastic on the shore that would wash into the ocean. Um, they collect it, they then turn it in, they get paid on their phone because many of these people simply don't have bank accounts. So they get paid on their phone. They also can mark where the plastic was collected using their phone. And then Plastic Bank recycles the plastic and sells it to SC Johnson. So if you buy a Windex bottle, it will have a little sticker that says made from ocean bound plastic. And if you say, well, wait a minute, how do I really know? They actually have a dashboard on their page that is updated in a live way. Um, that shows you where the plastic was collected. So it's totally transparent. The data are put on a blockchain, which is transparent. Um, so none of these are very complicated technologies, but they have reduced uh, more than 3 billion plastic bottles. They have stopped from going into the ocean. They have collected more than 60 million kilograms of plastic, which is about, uh, about 130, 140 million pounds. By way of comparison, to understand how big that number is, there is a project called the world's largest ocean cleanup. And what they do is they have these big collectors in rivers where they scoop up floating plastic. And then they have this boat that has this big net that's going out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean and part of a great garbage patch. Now, it's a different type of solution, right? It's targeting plastic and trash that's already in the ocean, not, you know, that's on the beach. But they call themselves the world's largest ocean cleanup. They have collected 1.6 million kilograms. Now, again, <laughs> plastic bank with just a bunch of people getting paid on cell phones, more than 60 million kilograms, the world's largest ocean cleanup, 1.6. So, People are skeptical that small things can add up to big results. There's probably no better example of plastic in the ocean to show you where the aggregated impact of lots of small efforts really makes a big difference. Yeah, so I think that leads into, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the criticisms that you address uh, towards the end of the book. And this is one of them which is, uh, I guess I would summarize is, okay, yeah, yeah, this is great. It's all fine. Uh, maybe it's a nice supplement, but it's really not going to uh, work at the scale that we need to address these problems. So if you want to have like some apps on your phone or whatnot, that's fine. But we still need, in order to really solve these problems, we still need the big, the big solutions, the government mandates, the treaties, the subsidies, you know, uh, all, all that sort of stuff. And you kind of, I mean, you alluded to part of the answer there, but what, what is your kind of response to that? Well, the, the simple fact is, is that it's, I think the problem with relying on government is that you can't rely on it. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and so, 
you know, like I mentioned, we're not uh, living up to the Paris Climate Accords. Um, the countries that are most vocal about it, uh, many of them haven't even submitted plans. So um, the, the first thing is, is that there is an assumption, I think, a lot of times that simply passing government laws, that it will work, right? We've passed this law, problem solved. When, when actually, if you've worked in environmental policy for 20 years, as I've had, uh, you, you've seen a lot of government programs that that not only didn't work, but in some cases backfired. So I'm not an anarchist, right? I'm not sitting here wearing black. Um, I don't think government has no role. I've, I've worked on some government uh, programs that I think work very well. But I think it's backwards. I think government is the supplement and private innovation is the leader. And that's what you really see time and again. And now we have expanded that innovation, not just to big ideas like, you know, fusion power, things like that, but lots of little ways to make incremental um, progress that add up. So um, I think it's, it's obviously a balance. It is not either or, but we are certainly underutilizing the power that small technologies offer to, to solve many of these environmental problems. Okay, so that I would characterize as maybe the, uh, the left-wing critique uh, of your book. There's also what you might call a right-wing critique, although these it's not 100% accurate, I guess, but another criticism, and you do address it, but it was something that came to my mind as I was reading about this is, you know, uh, I, I would be, I'm a little uh, worried about having all this data out there about everything. Uh, in particular, my concern is, okay, all this data is out there. You talk about how people uh, might be empowered to use that data for themselves, to help themselves, the community or whatever. But is there not also a risk that, uh, you know, government or some sort of agency or whatever would say, okay, great. Now we have all this data about like how much everybody electricity people are using. We can use it uh, ourselves to tell people, you know, uh, what they should use and try and like micromanage uh, usage. And so, you know, if you're, you, if you're, if it's hot out and uh, your AC is on, you know, maybe someone uh, in Washington can like, type a little bit into a keyboard and raise up your, your thermostat or whatever, or, or do stuff, different stuff with your, uh, your water. So w- what are your thoughts about that as a, as a general criticism? Yeah, those, those things are not theoretical, right? We have already seen um, situations where um, utilities and others will say, okay, I'm sorry, you can't, uh, you know, it's a hot day, but your thermostat is going to stay at 78 until the energy crisis is over. Um, and people get very upset. Now, in the cases that uh, have occurred so far, people have signed up for those and are getting, you know, paid, but either they didn't realize it or didn't realize, you know, the full extent of that or things like that. I share these pro- concerns, um, you know, especially less so that businesses will abuse you because, you know, you, there's other w- places to go. It's much more a concern right. to me when government abuses you because there's no place to go, right? Um, you can't, you know, right. un- unsign up from government control. Um, so, yeah, I certainly agree with that. No solution is perfect. There are always trade-offs. But my question is, is the new system better than the old one? 
So, so take example of a smart thermostats. Um, so let's say the worst case scenario is that California knows everyone who has a smart thermostat and whether you've signed up or not says, all right, that's it. 80 degrees is what it's going to be in your house. Uh, sorry, sucks to be you. Um, that is no good. I don't like that. But the alternative may be that they simply shut your power off. And given a choice between discomfort and then shutting your power off, I would choose discomfort. So in many ways, they already have sort of a sledgehammer that they can use against you. Um, and what I'm asking, you know, to switch to is a, I guess, is a ball peen hammer. <laughs> um, so it's not that it's not painful, but that it is less painful than the alternative. Government is always going to have power. But the other thing about this is, is that by decentralizing power, by giving people more control over their electricity, over these sorts of things, it's control they simply don't have now. Um, and governments find it very difficult to take that power back once people have gotten a taste of it. Seattle, Austin, lots of places have tried to rein in Uber and Lyft um, because they don't like the fact that, you know, this is a voluntary choice and people are doing their own things. And what those cities have often found is, is that the backlash against that is so large because once you give people power and control, um, it's really hard to undo. So right now in a lot of these areas, I certainly, um, understand and agree with the concern that government could abuse these things. On in general, my feeling is, is that in a lot of those places where government could abuse it, they already have the power to do real damage. And this at least gives consumers some control where they have very little right now. Okay. So final question. Uh, one thing that I think makes your book a little different from maybe the stereotypical works on environmentalism is, you know, the stereotype of environmentalists is uh, they're a fairly gloomy lot. There's a lot of doom, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of grim, austere stuff. And uh, your book is fairly optimistic, hopeful, positive. Why do you think, um, what is, what is the source of your, of your optimism? I know it's not, dealing with uh government or work on these issues you know you i think you mentioned at the beginning that you could still cite an article from 2003 about a particular <laughs> issue that you worked on uh that's nice in one respect but in another respect it's not necessarily a sign of a lot of progress i think that's yeah. probably true of a lot of issues for for people like us who work on this stuff you know it's sometimes it seems like the same stuff over and over again so what is the source of your optimism? Well, the fact that I look around and I see progress being made on issues that we weren't doing anything on. Um, we've talked about ocean plastic, right? Here's a very, plastic bank is doing something very simple and making a big impact on ocean plastic um, in ways that others are not. Um, there's opportunity there. There's opportunity on energy to get people in the game, to find ways to save money, save energy, reduce CO2 emissions in a way that isn't um, a government sledgehammer. 
Um, innovation does really remarkable things um, and makes it easy for people to do those things, as we've said, rather than, you know, and, and rewards them for it rather than guilting them or punishing them. And as I looked around, I saw an energy on water, on species, on plastic, uh, on all sorts of things, um, just incredible strides being made. And not just in the West, but especially in developing countries where very simple changes were making big improvements in the lives of people and the reduction in pollution. And it's funny because as I was writing this book over the last few years, you know, my day job is to deal with environmental politics, um, which is why I drink. Um, so <laughs> a lot of times uh, I would have just ridiculous issues to deal with at the political level. And then I would schedule an interview with somebody uh, in some corner of the world who was doing something and they would be very excited and be so uplifting. So my hope comes from the people that I talk to who are doing really cool things. And I think for my hope is, is that this book appeals to people on the left and right who are sincerely interested in helping the planet. On the left, there's a lot of recognition that what we're doing isn't working and we need new approaches. The, the forward actually to the book is written by a woman named Talia Speaker who works with the World Wildlife Fund and is one of the leaders in the world on um, environmental and conservation technology. For conservatives, I mean, look at a map. Conservatives live where the environment is. They don't live in cities. They live in rural areas surrounded by natural beauty. So they care. They're just concerned that saying out loud that they care about the environment binds them to sort of a Green New Deal socialist mentality for how we deal with these problems. And what I'm hoping that they will get from my book is, no, we don't need to do that. We can empower people. We can respect freedom. We can promote prosperity and help the environment using these technologies. So I, I hope that this gives conservatives, people on the center right, like me, um, hope that they can live up to their values, which include both individual freedom and choice and good stewardship of the planet. All right. My guest today has been Todd Myers. His book, Time to Think Small, is coming out November 1st. It's available for pre-order now uh, in hardback and Kindle. Uh, is there going to be an audio version? Do you know yet? Is that still up in the air? I think it's still up in the air. I would. Uh, we need to do that. I, I don't listen to the books that way because my I drift off, but I, a lot of people do. So we need to do that. But yes, it's okay. available on Amazon right now. Uh, hopefully in the future available audiobook. other ways. Yeah. Audiobooks has become my preferred uh, method of uh, consuming books, uh, mostly because uh, you can do it while you're chasing uh, little human beings around. But uh, print is good too. So uh, check it out. And until next time, uh, thank you for listening to the Urbane Cowboys.